6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. I thought we'd start a new book. As you know, my primary interest in the scripture has been prophecy, even when I was a kid. I thought it would be kind of fun to, uh, number one, do an Old Testament book. I'm kind of in an Old Testament mood, and I'd like to do a book on prophecy. And there is the pinnacle of prophecy, in a sense, in the Old Testament. The highest uh, form of uh, Hebrew writing is unequivocally the book of Isaiah. And so I thought what we might do, just to shift gears from our Genesis study and to shift gears from some of the other things we're doing, it might be fun to dig in. We did Isaiah some years ago. But uh, for lots of reasons, so many things have happened that I think it will be a book full of surprises. But also our study of Isaiah is sort of a personal study for me because I'd like to talk a little bit about a personal testimony. Because uh, I had the privilege when I was a teenager to uh, be exposed to an outstanding Bible teacher who ran around Southern California teaching evening studies. And I'd developed a close friendship with him, as well tutored by him, taught well in the beginning, a good biblically fundamental point of view. The Bible was inspired. I learned uh, the reality of taking it literally. I was drawn into what I think would be classified today as a premillennial, pre-trib orientation. I first met this uh, particular teacher when he was doing a series on Revelation, pointed out that it was in code, and that every code was explained in the Bible. That grabbed my attention. I became fascinated with that book, and then, of course, from there, was drawn into all the other classical prophetic books, Daniel, and so forth. And I grew very well as a teenager. Went to college, went to the Naval Academy. And even during the Naval Academy pressures and so forth, was able to stay in fellowship and grew spiritually and stayed in the Word, and, and it was constructive. Took my commission in the Air Force and started moving around the country. And my wife and I, uh, well, we moved quite a bit. In 34 years of marriage, that in itself I like to get out because in Orange County that's uh, some kind of milestone. In this county, if you've been married uh, two years, they say, what's your secret, right? <laughs> but we moved in uh, 34 years and we've lived in 25 houses. So with an executive career and what have you, we moved around a lot. The reason I bring all this up is that I started off great, well taught really in the Word. But then as I started doing studies and buying commentaries and things, I, I discovered some interesting things. I discovered that there's, there's some doubt that, that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. There was a thing called the documentary hypothesis that it was sort of scholastically naive to assume that Moses wrote those five books, that actually they were written by various uh, editors, J-E-M-N-O-P-Q-R-S-T, you know, the, the five, anyway, whatever. So I ran into that, and I was... Not greatly disturbed by it, a little surprised, did a little reading. Then I discovered that there was a, what, you know, the idea that Isaiah wrote Isaiah was naive, that anybody that was anybody that had done their homework knew that there were really two Isaiahs. And uh, I thought, oh, that's interesting. 
What I didn't appreciate in those formative years is how insidious and how destructive those theories are. Because uh, some of us, you know, we're interested in the Bible, we hear these things, we're not that interested in textual criticism, we just move on with it. And, but it turns out, as I look back, I began to realize that I lost in my spiritual life probably 20 years. Because I never fell away from the Word. I was still interested. I just always had a, an interest in it. But I, it lost its edge. Because every time I read something, I always had that lingering doubt in my mind. Well, did, is that really what the guy said? Or is that some copious error? And, you know, I mean, you start qualifying things. And as time goes on, you, you, get, you start sinking into the quagmire of modernism or liberalism. I wasn't smart enough in those days to know what it was. I just knew that as we moved around the country, a Methodist church here, a Presbyterian church there, a Lutheran church, whatever, just trying a few churches in each community we lived in, eventually settling on one that was least uncomfortable, but never finding a home. And I wasn't smart enough in those days to put my finger on what it was that didn't click. We've some neat ministers, articulate, bright, fun guys, but somehow it wasn't home. And I didn't understand in those days that what I was missing was, first of all, a minister that took the Bible seriously. Because they all were products of seminary training that was all imbued with what you and I would call, if we're informed, liberalism. One of the things to... Uh, to get at one thing for an example, let's just focus for an example on Isaiah because we're going to undertake a, a review of Isaiah and it's going to be full of some dramatic surprises for all of us. But before we go down that road, I'd like to share a few things with you. As we study the book of Isaiah, it consists of 66 chapters. And in fairness to the critics, there are some strange attributes to the book. Of the 66 chapters, the first 39 seem to have a certain style, a certain atmosphere, a certain focus. And even in the English, as you read it, when obviously in translation we lose much of the elegance, the beauty, the, the pulse of the Hebrew. And uh, that's just a penalty of, of, of language translation. But even in the English, as you read Isaiah, if you're into Isaiah reading a few chapters a day, when you get beyond chapter 39, you, you'll notice... Like the gear shift, is there's a, a fresh new breeze that starts from chapter 40 on. It's a different kind of a, a mood. And so in fairness to the critics, there is something you can sense stylistically from the first 39 chapters versus the last 27. Now, as some people will point out, the Bible has how many books? 66. How many books in the Old Testament? 39. How many in the New do the arithmetic. 27, okay? It's interesting that Isaiah is like a mini-Bible in the sense that the first 39 chapters have a heaviness to them, in a sense. And the last 27 chapters have a freshness to them, a little different mood. So, But lest you make too much of that, remind you that chapter divisions were introduced in the 15th century by man. So you can't draw, don't ever draw excessive inferences from the way chapters break up. In fact, the more you study the Bible, you'll discover that many of the chapter breaks are in very awkward places. More often than not, a chapter starts a verse or two too late. 
and often you're well advised, especially dealing with a critical chapter, always start a few verses earlier to get the to you'll realize the chapter breaks are not always put in an enlightened place. So in any case, uh, making some perception of Isaiah from the chapter organization is naive. So in fairness to the critics, there are some problems, so to speak, in that sense. But it's interesting that we survived till the 1700s and didn't have any trouble with Isaiah. People read their Bibles and liked Isaiah. Until 1780, a German by the name of Kopp, K-O-P-P-E, wrote a paper casting some concerns, suggesting some clouds or doubts about chapter 50. And then uh, when, when one guy writes a paper, you know that tends to cause other people to write papers. And so pretty soon people are publishing papers on chapter 13 and 14 and 23. And all of this diatribe continues and would probably not have been that harmful until 1889, where a very prominent commentator on the Old Testament, Dillage, who had been fighting these guys, finally caved in and agreed that, gee, maybe there really were two Isaiahs. And that opened the floodgates. And so it became very fashionable among so-called, and I'll put this in quotations, higher critics... There was an era, and it still continues today, where uh, men with lots of degrees and trying to impress their, their constituencies from various universities love to write papers on this obscure thing or that obscure thing, and on it goes. Now, the first point I'd like to get across, this idea, whether it's Isaiah or Genesis or whatever, these clouds that occur are far more destructive to your personal faith and walk than may be obvious until you've experienced it. And I'm saying this from personal experience because uh, on the one hand, I was well taught. And um, on the other hand, I blew. I'd say from the mid-50s to the uh, late 60s anyway by being on the shelf, loving the Lord, liking, you know, uh, enjoying the Bible, and yet not in there, you know, on the sidelines. Why? For lots of reasons, most of which emerge from these clouds, these nagging doubts that liberalism tends to bring. Now, what I could do tonight, but don't panic, I won't, (laughs) is go through these arguments, explain why the arguments are there, and refute them one by one because they're wrong. You can attack these problems scholastically and nail them to the wall, surprisingly enough. And we could spend hours talking about the textual subtleties that demonstrate that these arguments about two Isaiahs are nonsense. But if I do that, not not only will I bore you to death, I'll deprive you of a gigantic shortcut, an enormous insight that perhaps is more important than the issue itself. I'm going to suggest to you that these 66 books written by 40 authors are designed as a message system. I've said that many times, and you'll hear it again, that the Holy Spirit has architected, if I may use that phrase, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, every detail. What does that mean? That means any heresy, any notion that sweeps through the body of Christ does not catch him by surprise. He knew it was coming, and he has put the answer in the Word. Now, I spent, I should say I wasted, a lot of time reading dull, dry papers 
on the documentary hypothesis, which is usually the phrase applied to the five books of Moses arguments, the Deuteroisaiah, and by the way, not just two guys, there's also a three Isaiah theory. There's all, these theories come and go because it sells books and it also impresses professors that have the power to grant a PhD or whatever. And uh, I'm an engineer by training, but a businessman by uh, professional background. And I don't know if you, in, in business, you'll discover that top executives in major corporations view a PhD with distrust, with the exception of certain scientific fields. Most people in business that have a PhD hide it. They try not to let it get out. And it's interesting that in business, a PhD is regarded as a, as a symptom of insecurity rather than a credential. And as life goes on, I'm beginning to understand that more and more. But something to offend everyone tonight, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I spent all that time, and um, I was fascinated to discover John chapter 12. So I would like to start our little exploration of Isaiah, partly because it's in the form of a personal testimony and partly because it'll set the mood of what we're up to. But um, in John chapter 12, there is a passage that when I finally understood its significance... I almost wept with tears. Now, in John, there is a particular argument being made, and I don't really want to take our time tonight to get into the substance of the argument. It's sort of incidental to our purpose. Let's look at John chapter 12, pick it up about verse 37, recognizing there's a discussion going on. I'll leave it to yourself to read the chapter and get the flavor of the issue. The issue is not what I'm after. It's a subtlety I'm after. Verse 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Well, that's a very common phrase in the Gospels, where Jesus would do something, and yet despite what he did, they were still skeptical. He can heal, he can raise from the dead, and they, the Pharisees still say, gee, give us a sign. But in any case, but in this case, the argument is that they believe not on him. Verse 38, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Now, I love that phrase. You see, do you have any doubts about Isaiah's office? What's his role? He's a prophet. How do I know? John tells me that. Right? But let's move on. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Quote, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? There's a quote from Isaiah. Down in verse 40, there is another quote from Isaiah. Verse 40. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart, and be converted that I should heal them. These things saith Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, and on it goes. Now here's the point. Here are two quotes from Isaiah, right? Now if you do your homework, verse 40 turns out to be a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see. Incidentally, verse 40 is parallel or analogous to Matthew 13. If you recall, there are times when Jesus gave them parables. It was not to reveal. It was to hide. There were times when he wanted to communicate to his disciples specifically by the power of the Spirit and yet not necessarily make that widely known to the public. And parables have that attribute. You can study Matthew 13 to get that background. This is an analogous type of remark here in Isaiah. 
You have blinded their eyes. In other words, that they should not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts. But the main point I'm getting at tonight isn't that issue. Verse 40 in John 12 is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 38 is a quotation. That, that saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Many of you in this audience will recognize that immediately as the opening stanza of Isaiah chapter 53. Right? Isaiah 53, sometimes called by scholars the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. It's the pivotal chapter. You could take two chapters, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and present the gospel of Christ to anyone that accepts the Old Testament. I mean, literally. I mean, accepts it literally. Okay. Now, here's the point, though, that I'm so indebted to. Verse 39, and I mark it in my Bible with tears of gratitude. Verse 39, between those two verses, it says, Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. What does that mean? We've got a quote from Isaiah 53. Notice that's in so-called second Isaiah. See, Isaiah, by the critics, is classified. First 39 chapters, they call Isaiah 1. Chapters 40 to 66, they call Isaiah 2, the second Isaiah, right? John didn't know that, you see. Verse 38 is from Isaiah 53. Verse 40 is from Isaiah 6. And between those is this precious insight. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. Same guy said both. Now, for me personally, this flushed down the toilet acres of dry papers that I had wasted years trying to understand and learn and background. Why? You either accept the Bible or you don't. What I have discovered, not just because of this, for a thousand other reasons, either buy it or you don't. If somebody says, you know, I don't believe the Bible, this, that, and the other thing, I can respect that position. I can understand it. I can deal with it. What amazes me are the people who have the fancy degrees and, and claim to accept the Bible, except this, that, and the other, all these footnotes. Well, Moses didn't write Genesis. And by the way, Isaiah didn't write Isaiah. And first thing you know, the thing shreds. It comes apart like a knit dress. You know, you pull one thread and it's... You'll discover the interesting thing about the Bible is its interdependency. Everything is so interconnected that you'll discover... A cloud or a smudge on one part has echoes all through it. Now, the flip side of that is the excitement you get when you realize that it all hangs together tightly. Every verse, every chapter, this, this whole book is an integral whole. And what I've tried to do tonight in these remarks is not only share what I think is a, a relevant personal testimony, I also am trying to give you a tool that can affect your whole life. And that is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Let the Holy Spirit deal with these problems. I have saved you in the few minutes we've spent together so far hours of library research that will be at Box Canyon. So I'm one to tell you I'm a, I'm a technically trained engineer. I've studied the Bible in effect for 40 years, taught it for 20 and the more I study and dig in it, the more I am awed 
by the integrity of the design of the Holy Spirit in in these collection of 66 books. In fact, if there's any one thing that gives me strength and comfort in a sea of adversity is the recognition that this book is, in fact, holy. It is not a collection that contains the Word of God. To a view that the Bible contains the Word of God implies that somebody has to separate the wheat from the chaff. Nonsense. The statement that's more relevant is that this Bible is the Word of God. And when you start discovering in the most obscure genealogies germs of truth that impact everything else, when you begin to realize that every subtlety ties into everything else, that's when you stand back in utter awe. Now, as we approach this book, it's going to be kind of fun because we've chosen to embark on exploration of the high ground. One of the most interesting subjects in my mind is prophecy. And some of the richest, most profound prophecy is in the Old Testament. And the most comprehensive book uh, in the Old Testament, prophetically, is the book of Isaiah. We call them a major prophet. There are five prophets that are called major prophets. It does not mean they're more important. That just means they wrote more. Major in the sense of bulk, larger. And uh, Isaiah is the largest, 66 books. But what's going to make Isaiah fun is the discovery of what's in this book. One of the things, see, you and I, in general, as Christians, generally get a lot of exposure to the New Testament. And there are certain topics that are very topical among us. For example, we talk about the Antichrist. I've been doing a personal study on that lately for lots of reasons, and I was flabbergasted to discover that most of what we know about the Antichrist is out of the Old Testament. He has 33 titles in the Old Testament. There are 20 Psalms focusing on the Antichrist. But you have to know what to look for. And what's interesting, uh, that's one reason I guess that I have sort of at the moment at least I'm going through a phase where I'm really anxious to dig in deeper into that portion of the scripture that sometimes we'll read devotionally and swing through, but we really don't dig out the nuggets. And uh, I think a review, not too laborious, we'll try to keep it moving, but of Isaiah uh, will be very, very rewarding. Now... I'd like to, before we get in too much into Isaiah, is to get a little bit of background. Isaiah is different than a lot of these guys. You know, some of these prophets were of fairly obscure backgrounds. Isaiah, we don't know as much as we'd like to know about him. He's son of Amos, but it's not nothing to do with Amos, by the way. Both the first and last letters in the Hebrew are different. Nothing to do with Amos, the prophet. Son of Amos. First of all, Isaiah was a man of rank. We know from chapter 7, he had direct access to the king. He's a heavy. He also was an intimate friend of the high priest. So these inferences cause us to recognize that Isaiah is a little different kind of guy than a lot of the books of the Old Testament uh, were written by. The other thing about Isaiah that we will miss in the English pretty much is that it becomes clearly, in extreme case, it's the highest level of Hebrew writing. If you're a student of language, Isaiah is the high ground. It's almost an inventory of every rhetorical device you can mention in terms of epigrams and allegories and analogies and poetry. Every category of rhetoric, every category of rhetoric you can find in the book of Isaiah. It's a masterpiece in that regard. Obviously, that's not our primary interest. I mention it in passing. But even, you even will have, in what's really amazing, and we'll show you this when we get to chapter 7, we have encryptions in the book. 
And if you're a student of secret writing, with one of the agencies or what have you, the encryptions that are in Jeremiah and Isaiah are well known if you're a student of cryptography. And they're regarded by the trade as simply interesting historical novelties. But if you're a mystic, like I am, the fact that the Holy Spirit has encryptions in the Scripture causes one to wonder what else there is. If uh, the CIA computers can find something, that's one thing. What can you find if the Holy Spirit's working with you? That's a whole other question. Well, we'll get to that when the time comes. Also, to get some of these things out of the way, get them behind us, I'd like to tell you there are some traditions about Isaiah. Now, I say traditions... Uh, you realize I'm speaking of information that we infer from extra-biblical sources. Before I get into that, I should also share with you, recognizing some of you are new here and may not know me as some of the regulars who have been together almost 20 years. So I apologize for being a little repetitious, but you need to know what you're up against. Some people in this audience said, can you imagine being abused for 18 years, 20 years, whatever it's been? (laughs) I have a strange attitude about traditions. And doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just sharing this so you at least know where I'm coming from. I hold what I sometimes like to dignify by calling it constructive cynicism. But I think most traditions, delete most, all traditions, <laughs> are probably wrong. Traditions come from man. And the traditions that I have explored generally are incorrect. From all this, I, have, I just have this sort of caution or cynicism or attitude thing towards traditions, that the most traditions, that if they're, they're either biblical, if they're biblically rooted, I'll buy it. If they're not biblically rooted, I always treat it with great suspicion. It may not be harmful, it may not be irrelevant, but I still do it that way. And I don't care whether you're talking about the date of Christmas. We've been all through that. Everybody knows that Jesus was not born in the winter. Uh, Christmas, our uh, celebration really emerges from, from uh, the corruption of, uh, or I should say the tailoring of some uh, pagan holidays. And we've all been through that when we study uh, the Christmas background. If you study the Stations of the Cross in Israel, they were picked by Constantine's mother, right? I'm not sure what theological background qualifies her to do that. But anyway, most of those today, I believe, are regarded with great suspicion among serious scholars. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.